And now as uh, we turn to the scripture, would you pray with me? Our God, I confess that my mind, my body, even my spirit, in many ways is tired. We all come uh, from different parts and different states this morning, but all of us are in need of your grace, in need of your power, in need of your light this morning. So, would you bring light to our minds and light to our hearts so that we can see you and trust you and have joy in you? We ask your help this morning by your spirit, and in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Would you turn with me now to Mark's Gospel in chapter 1? We'll start in verse 14. We're covering quite a lot of ground here, which I'll talk about in just a minute why that is. But Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. This is God's word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new, or what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
This is God's word. So that was a lot. I know that's a whole bunch of verses hung in there with me. The reason why we're doing it at this pace, I know we're going at kind of a fast clip consuming a lot of text all at once, is because this is Mark's style. This is the way he writes. You notice, you may have noticed in the text we read today, he uses the word immediately a lot. So basically, Mark is the kind of guy that cuts to the chase. You know that phrase, cut to the chase? Like in a movie when you push play on the movie and it starts kind of in the middle of a scene and you don't really know what's going on, but there's cops chasing somebody and somebody's running and there's right in the middle of the action and then the cuts are fast. This, then this, then this, then this, then this. That's what Mark does for us. That's part of the reason why we started out in the wilderness and he went straight to his baptism for a few verses and straight further into the wilderness for just a few verses. Then he's in Galilee and Capernaum. We're jumping, 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 jumping. And Mark is stringing this all together on purpose. So that's why we're doing so much at once. Now, before we talk about the bulk of this text, let me take a rabbit trail here briefly. Even though Mark is using this word immediately and it's going at a very fast clip, going from instant to instant, event to event to event to event, let me be very clear. Even though Christ's work here is very important, Christ himself is not rushed. In fact, at the end of this text, Jesus separates himself from his disciples, all the people who had followed him, so that he can pray. And afterward, it says in verse 36 that they searched for him, and they're saying, hey, where are you? Where have you been? People are looking for you. So we know Jesus didn't go, hey, listen, guys, I'm going to go over there and pray. I just want you to know so that you can find me if you need me. He just leaves. He separates himself. He's not hurried. And then he goes on to the next town, even though surely there was plenty left to do in that town. So, still a rabbit trail here, but an important one. Christmas is in two weeks, right? And we know that the season of Christmas is there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of warmth, there's a lot of family, and there's a lot of stress. There's lots to do, there's holiday bustle, there's year in business to get done, we're being bombarded with lots of ads, there's buy lists, to-do lists, and all of this, if we let it, will crush our joy. And sometimes, even, we experience the opposite of that, that as everything is bustling, sometimes our lives are not bustling, something about the holiday season can be very lonely, or sometimes feeling empty. As others are with family, we realize our lack sometimes. There we go. And that will produce in us a different kind of joylessness. Both of these, incredible rush, incredible loneliness, both lacking in joy, and the response to both, just as a brief reminder to us, is to pause and put our eyes on Jesus. That's why we come here, right? It's to worship. It's pressing that reset button when the wireless stops working and you have to unplug it and plug it back in. That's what we're doing here, is to remind ourselves of our God. And in the process of that, 
It will renew our obedience. He will renew our discipleship. He will renew our joy. So there's my rabbit trail. Okay, now we're back to the text. What's going on here? Two weeks ago, uh, before we had our baby, we left Jesus in the wilderness. That's where he was. He'd been tempted by the devil. And so now he's come into Galilee, and he's saying at the beginning of these verses, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, he says. Something is happening. The wheels are starting to turn. There's a new thing coming. And the first thing he does out of this is call disciples. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Those are the four particularly that are listed here. But this call to discipleship is a theme throughout the whole of Mark. He calls particular people as disciples, but in the whole he's calling us to discipleship, that we would follow him, that we would be his disciples. This is his call. However, we know that not every call is good. And we need to distinguish between good calls and bad calls. So there's a few ways that can help us do this. One is to ask, who am I being called by? So a good example of this is if a man comes up in an unmarked white van and has a handful of candy and says, do you want some candy? Come over here. Probably not a good call, right? Who am I being called by? I don't know this guy. Stranger danger, right? That is not a good call. The person doing the calling here, though, is Jesus. And a second thing that can help us to distinguish what is a good call, so we ask, who am I being called by? And then, what am I being called to? Who am I being called by, and then what am I being called to? And if you'll look here, when Jesus calls them, he does not call them to a system of morality. Here, follow my example. Do what I do. That's not what he says. He also does not call them to a system of teaching. Here, listen to me. Here's some techniques. Here's some truth. Here's some doctrine. We love those things, but that is not his calling here. He also does not call them to a system of grinning happiness, right? This is not an infomercial. Jesus is not pitching a product here and trying to convince you of why it's important that you should buy this waxy product. So what is Jesus calling us to? If you look there, his first words, verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me. He's not just calling them to morality, not just calling them to his teaching, not just calling them to a mood, emotional happiness. Follow me. Jesus, we are both called by Jesus and called to Jesus. So with both of those things together, there is quite a lot riding on this identity of this person, Jesus. And we need to ask the question, who is he? So, right after the calling, they followed him. And we see, here comes this word, immediately. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately, 
On the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue. So they're asking, and we're asking, who is this person, Jesus? Here's what they experienced. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Something is different here about this man. What is it? They were astonished at his teaching for... So four, there's a marker. Here's the reason why they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority. As one who had authority. So we need to look at what does it mean that Jesus had authority. Now, authority is different than what we call authoritarian They sound similar. They are very different. Jesus is not being authoritarian here. So authoritarianism is the kind of thing where whoever carries the biggest stick is in charge. Whoever's the strongest, whoever has the most muscle, whoever will push you the hardest until you cry uncle, that's the person who has the power. It's a bully mentality. That's not what's happening here. And I don't have to spell out what this looks like. You probably at some point have had a boss, maybe, who was like this, a teacher who was like this, a parent who was like this, a friend who was like this. Maybe you've even been like this. This is not real authority. It's weakness. Sometimes even government leaders are like this, and in fact, in systems in countries where they have an authoritarian system, whoever has the biggest stick has the power, they are often the bloodiest countries because you have to fight to keep that power, right? A teacher that's pushing you around, trying to prove, hey, listen to me, listen to me, finger shaking, they're the most threatening. They're constantly trying to retain their power. They're trying to keep it because it is is perpetually slipping away and they're desperately grabbing hold of it or trying to. That is not what is happening here. Jesus is not authoritarian. He is authoritative. So even though he's not without power, authoritative or to have authority means to be in a position or having the right to rule. Now, What does that look like? If Jesus has authority, has a position or right to rule, what is that? A good example of this is in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Esther, which doesn't often get a lot of playtime, but it's an excellent story, a true story, and many many of you already know it, so I won't tell the whole story. I'll just pull out a clip of it. It's in the Persian Empire. So there was a king, Xerxes. He was the ultimate king over all the things in that land. And his queen at this time was Esther. And there was a bad guy, the evil dude of the story named Haman, who gets really upset that one of the Jews named Mordecai doesn't bow to him. So Haman goes up to the king and says, listen, I want you to write an edict or write a law that we can wipe out these people, the Jews. And the king says, okay, And the way you can do this is I'm going to give you something very important that lets you do this. And he pulls off of his hand a ring. It specifically says in chapter 3 of Esther that it was what they call a signet 
ring. Has anyone ever seen one of these or know what this is? They usually, I mean, my ring, my wedding ring is very plain, right? Or wedding rings sometimes have diamonds or, or various things. Signet rings have symbols on them, usually a picture of some sort, and it was very specific to the person who had that signet ring. It would be their design, sometimes a crest, various symbols would be on them. And the way that you use them is you drop a little bit of candle wax on whatever thing you are signeting, and you press your ring into it. And that shows that that has your authority. The modern version of this, a signature, right? When you're writing a document or at the bottom to prove that it was yours or that you're writing this letter, you sign it in ink with your name and that says, yes, I approve this. Yes, I have the right to authorize this. So when Jesus talks about, or when they talk about Jesus having authority, it means just like that signet ring, it stamps it. That's what's happening here. So, if Jesus has this authority, like a signet ring does, what does that authority look like? And if we continue to read in verse 22, it says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, on one hand, the authority is tied to the teaching, right? Did you hear it in there? He taught them as one who had authority. There's some knowledge component. And as someone who has just had a baby, oh my goodness, there is so much knowledge being spread, knowledge, quote unquote, about baby raising. Do this, don't do this, you must have this, you shouldn't have this. And some of it's conflicting. Everybody, strangers come up to us and give us unsolicited advice. Blogs are written, forum posts, everybody's telling us the kind of stuff that we should do. And a lot of it's probably relatively trustworthy. But at the end of the day, a lot of times, I just wanted to go, what does the doctor say? Right? Because that person knows something. Now, they may not know our baby, but this doctor knows babies, has a deep and intimate knowledge of all of these things. They have authority. So part of Jesus' authority comes in his teaching, but it's more than that. It's bigger than that because it says he taught as one who had authority, but not as the scribes. And immediately, is the next few words, and immediately... Then there's this event of a man who has an unclean spirit who comes in and pushes against Jesus. And Jesus casts the unclean spirit out. And in verse 27, they look at it and they're amazed. And they question among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? So part of his authority is bound up in the fact that he is able to cast out these unclean spirits. And then the next event is that he casts out the fever, the illness in Simon's mother-in-law. So part of his authority is bound up in the fact that he can heal. And then in verse 32, it kind of wraps it all together. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or all who were oppressed by demons. Those are two different categories there, all who were sick and all who were oppressed by demons. Now, some of you know that before I came here, when I was in St. Louis, I worked for BJC, which is a hospital system in their behavioral health department. 
So I worked with mental health, people who were having difficult emotional problems. And I've seen some hard, hard things. And I remember particularly there was one, one young guy in high school, very difficult situation. And he had made some very poor choices and had a very hard family life. And so I would see him once a week and we'd go out and do various things and talk about various things. And, and one time, randomly, we're sitting in my truck, you know, and he is singing and he was probably the worst singer I've ever heard in real life. Um, but he just didn't care and sang anyway, which I loved about him. So he is singing his heart out to the radio, and then out of nowhere, he stops. And as I'm driving, he looks over at me, and he goes, you're religious, right? Which I sometimes get asked. And I said, I suppose you could say that. Yes, I'm a religious person. And this guy asks me, when I act a fool, that was his way of saying, when I do things that are not great, when I act a fool, is that because of a demon or because I'm sick in the head? Yikes. Went from singing to a very, very deep question. He's talking about the two categories that Jesus has just brought out here. There were many who... Uh, who were all who were sick and all who were oppressed by demons. And he's really saying, which is it? Now, there's something very telling in his question, as if it's a dichotomy, meaning it can only be one or the other. There's either demons that cause all these things, or there's some sort of sickness, mental or, or otherwise. But the scripture tells us that both of these things are realities. And when we act a fool... Many times, there's some form of sin involved. We'll get to talk about that next week. But other times, there's because of mental or physical illness. Sometimes people that are battling depression, chronic anxiety, suicidal thoughts, various forms of schizophrenia or bipolar disorders that plague them. These are real things. And... There is a spiritual illness, a spiritual plague, a realm of evil forces who are acting against us that are also very real. We'll get to see and dig more into this when we reach chapter 5, where we meet Legion. So that will be for another time. The point here, however, is that Jesus has authority over both of them, over all of them, over all of the physical and all of the spiritual. He is in the position and has the right to rule. He is the Holy One of God, God in the flesh, the signet ring. I want that, right? Because these other things, I don't want to be oppressed by them. Who wants sickness or demonic influence? I want someone who has authority over that. I need that. I crave that. And that's who Jesus is. In fact, as we come up on Christmas, there's something sort of fitting about the fact that a signet ring is so small and yet so powerful. As we're looking at this squirming baby and 
in the videos that you see or in the Christmas programs or in the manger scenes. You look at how tiny he is, but how much authority he's already got. And so by the time now that he's an adult and he's here in Galilee and Capernaum and he's beginning his ministry, he not only has the authority, here he's using it. He's exercising that authority to cast out sickness, to cast out demons. And he does all of this to show us who he is. And in contrast, to show us who we are. He shows us that he is the one with all authority. He's the one in the position of power. He is the one who does the calling. And in contrast, we are the ones that follow that call that have to submit to his authority and as a result become amazed knowing that in the end our joy can only be fully found in Christ's authority. Let that be our rest. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we know that your power is immense, far more than we could ever know or imagine. And yet the way that you play that out, as we watch Jesus casting out sickness, casting out demons, starting to flex those muscles and show us your full authority over creation, ah, Lord, we love these things. Help us in this process to see you in your authority and to trust you. We ask you, we ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.